Hello and welcome to the Formidable Over 40 podcast. I'm Sarah Pittendrig, a mum, award-winning entrepreneur, cancer survivor, mentor and coach. In series two of the podcast, we're sharing new stories along with the ethos that you are never too old and it's never too late to design a life you love. On this episode, I'm joined by Julia Bueno. Julia practices full-time as a psychotherapist in London. Her first book, The Brink of Being, Talking About Miscarriage, won the British Medical Association Popular Medicine Book Awards 2021 and was the runner-up for the British Psychological Society Book Awards 2021. She has a particular expertise in working with pregnancy loss and infertility and has met thousands of self-critics in her consulting room. Her writing has been published in The Times, The Sunday Times, The New York Times, Psychology Today, and she reviews books for the Time Literacy Supplement. Julia's newest book, Everyone's a Critic, is focused on how we can learn to be kind to ourselves. I'm looking forward to hearing more about Julia's incredible work on this episode of the Formidable Over 40 podcast. Before we do, please do rate and subscribe to the podcast so I can keep sharing more inspiration just like this. So, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Good to meet you. Oh, it's great to meet you too. I've given a little bit of an intro there to you. I'm sure there is so much more to share. Would you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, well, I'm I'm definitely over 40. I'm not sure whether I'm formidable. We can come on to what that means for me. But um, as you say, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist and I work uh, full-time in my private practice in London. Mm. I used to have a bit more of a sort of smorgasbord career psychotherapist working in NHS settings and uh, for charities. And I did work at a university counselling service. But in more recent years, I've just been solely in private practice. And mm. as you've mentioned, that's reflected in both the books that I work in written about. Mm. Um, I have sort of specialist interest in reproductive loss and indeed this pesky notion of self-criticism that runs like a golden thread through pretty much everybody who walks through my door, whatever their presenting issue. Um, But yeah, I I, I start maybe worth just as a I started my professional life way back when, very briefly as a lawyer, um, right. a, a disastrous one. And I, I sort of gave myself the red card before, I think, the sister's firm did, and, and then kind of went um, in a different direction and ended up requalifying in my sort of late 20s, early 30s yeah. to psychotherapy. So I've been at, at that one for a couple of decades now. So to go from law, which is, it's very interesting. So you went into study law, then took the step back, said, that's not for me, went into psychotherapy. Where did that come from then? Because that's quite a shift. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I studied law at university and I, I sort of did a bit of graduate law, did a bit of teaching of law. Uh, so I went a bit even further. I qualified as a, a lawyer and practiced for a year, but all along the way, I knew I was bending myself out of shape. Mm. So I was put on the the law track at an early age through sort of influences around me. Should we put it that? that? It it never, it it wasn't springing from my own heart and it took Mm -hmm. a very long time for me to to get the courage to actually be true to myself and and leave. And psychotherapy was slightly the direction I was tilting toward for a number of reasons, but actually I found myself with the law that I was doing and I ended up doing um, what's called private client private client law. So I was sort of talking to very high net worth individuals about mm. their assets and trying mm-hmm. to kind of help them rearrange them in a legal way to be more tax favorably. I 
just didn't care mm. about that. But what I really cared about was the stories and the people yes. I was meeting and the, mm -hmm. the family stories that I was listening to in these rooms. So this sort of really piqued my interest into yeah. looking into another direction. And eventually that's... that's um, yeah, and that's a brave thing to do because there'll be a lot of listeners who who'll have a share a similar story. And I see, I in my other life, one of my other lives, I mentor and and support female CEOs and female founders, and it's very interesting, as you say there, how many people have followed did for for a long period of time followed the path they thought they had to follow mm -hmm. that they should follow, you know, and it takes. It is a, a, a strength, isn't it? It takes huge strength and courage to say, "Hang on a minute, stop! This isn't this isn't serving my purpose. This isn't absolutely this isn't giving filling me with passion." You came to the conclusion because it obviously it wasn't, you know, mm. giving, giving you that passion and inspiration and energy that you know you get when you're doing something you love. How did you manage to make that? decision what was there a pit was there a point yeah I mean I literally remember the tipping point mm. um still and this is over 25 years ago um waking up one morning I was living with a friend in a sort of flat chair in London and washing my teeth very early in the morning and mm. looking at a bar of soap in the in the sink and thinking if I nibble at this soap and make myself sick oh I really do I, I've got a genuine excuse not to go to work today <sighs> yeah and I, you know, I, the one bit of my brain <laughs> clocked that and thought this really yeah, isn't, this is not, this mm -hmm. is, this, this is not the way to live. So, but yeah. I, but I do have to put it in context. I was lucky enough to be, I was then in my mid twenties. Mm. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have yeah. any responsibilities. So I had a bit of flex in my life to be able to make that change. And it's, you know, I, like yourself, you know, it's, it's, it's a different dimension when you want to make a sea change when you've got a lot of other things in place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to have that, that was the right time, that to it pivot. Was. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. So we talk about being formidable over 40 and it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And it, and it's, for me, the, the formidable over 40 podcast, the ethos behind it is, is I, I say to everyone, I don't believe you're ever too old. It's never too late you're never too old. It's never too late to design a life you love. And I speak from my own experience because it took me to be 40 before I feel I found myself and my own voice. And I think 50, I'm 51 now, before I actually found real confidence and that courage to say no when I mean no and to say yes when I want to say yes. And that's a lot of decades to go through to mm. get to, to that mm. point. But I think there's a lot of people get to a point where they, they hit midlife and they think, this is it. This is it. I'm, I'm stuck and, and I've just got to put up. With, I think people sometimes of our generation were told you just put up with your lot. And I don't think you have to. I'm very passionate believer that it is never too late. So that's about bringing on wonderful guests like yourself who can share the stories and you know, inspire people to realise that you are, it's never too late, you know. What does Formidable Over 40 mean to you? Well, um, I, I, I guess I sort of echo what what you've just described, that for me there's something about taking stock mm. and, and marshalling the wisdom that you have accrued over the decades, because we do, just through mm. the living of life, mm. and being able to take a kind of inventory of, of oneself and and ask ourselves some hard questions about what it is that we are capable of and not capable of and what we want and what we don't want and being being real about that. And as you say, I think it can be, if all goes well, quite a liberating process to realise that we can say no and we can say yes. 
Mm. And and something that you touched on about um, when we chatted just put off air about mm, your yeah. introduction about mm. j- just taking a, a, a stock check on the our goals and you know what whether they really are a, a, in alignment with our values. Mm. All of this sort of stuff I think can come around at that yeah in in, in the wake of of living life for a bit, living our adult life for a bit. I I I think I alluded to the word kind of formidable. It was interesting when when I um you first got in contact because mm-hmm. formidable for me is a word that used to have quite negative connotations mm-hmm. in my mind for me mm-hmm. because I think I've had accusations in my uh and I say it's accusations sort of in my 20s I was, I'm a very different person now to mm-hmm. to when I was then and and I could sometimes be described as formidable in quite a pejorative way that I mm-hmm. was an edge to me I was a bit spiky probably could be maybe quite unpleasant at times I don't know mm. but um whereas now formidable has a different connotation it's it has a more kind of grounded quality and a softer edge to it and a, a sort of strength rising out of a more kind of compassionate place I think yes. than a than a defensive fearful place yeah I don't know whether I, that makes sense it makes absolute sense and I think that's absolutely it and that's why I used the word because oh. it has it, it can mean so many things to so many different people yeah and often and and again you you're the psychotherapist oh god i'm not telling you what to do but how many people appear to be formidable on the outside um hiding behind that strong smile but actually inside they really yeah. are feeling anything the nothing you know anything but formidable and what what i'm trying to say again with that word formidable it's about using the lessons that we've picked you know that we've gone through these tough lessons that we've gone through through the decades and there'll be failure there'll be adversity there'll be pain there'll be happiness there'll be all so many different feelings and experiences that we've gone through and it's to put them into into our backpack if you like to 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 make us formidable in terms of believing and knowing and understanding that we are never too old we're never too late because we've got such a wealth of experience now and that is what will make us formidable. And it's just recognizing it because I don't think some people recognize how far they've come mm-hmm. because they're so busy treading water just to get by. They miss the milestones that have been, you know, sort of what would you call it? Sort of form- the formative the formative years and maybe don't realize just how, how wonderful they are. And this is a bit of a rain check, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so if we go back... Two, you, you mentioned there about your 20s and how different you were then to now. So I like to take my guests back to when they were 15 and, you know, what are your dreams? What were your hobbies? What were you doing? And then it sort of takes us onto that journey of where we are today. So would you like to share a little bit about where you were? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of... Um disappoint you there sir because actually I, I my 15 year old self was pretty unhappy right I, yeah I was a, yeah. I wasn't a very happy uh, teenager and mm-hmm. I was very lost and I think I already had a sense then of being put on some tracks that mm-hmm. as I said you know yeah me being a lawyer started quite early on I think mm-hmm. I was very bright at school I was academically very high achieving and sort of pegged for great things and mm-hmm. to go to a top university and all of that which I did but um I I think even then I was I detected that it didn't really sing true. So mm-hmm. I think my my dreams and hobbies were rather kind of shackled by kind of just getting through school 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's very no. happy with my peers and my friends. But um, as I say, I had a I had an early sense of 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 not really um, being in alignment. Yes, I totally resonate with that. I'll have to send you my book. <laughs> I'd love to read it. <laughs> I'll send you my book. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'm really interested to talk about your book. Everyone's a critic. So rather than me share or or, or I'd love you just to. Share with the the readers how it came about, and you know what what you do in your work. You know the whole the whole thing, and how you've come to write these, you know, use these case studies and so sure. forth. Could, would you share? Yeah, sure. I mean, I um, my my first book was about pregnancy loss, as you mentioned, and yeah. I was I really I didn't enjoy the writing process at all. I found it excruciating, mm-hmm. but I think there was such a great sense of relief when it was published, and you know it it could it could be um my sentences made sense and some people liked it and everything so it inspired me I think in the wake I, I realized that actually I, I did really um enjoy it and I wanted to do it again mm. um with a bit more confidence so I was scrabbling around for um an idea and it was actually my my husband who's known me for 30 years yeah. just said well why don't you write about the next thing that you know so well and mm. I said well what's that they said, well, self-criticism, duh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, which has been a kind of personal cross to bear. And I have done a huge amount of work. And when I sort of say I compare myself now to that 20-year-old self, well, yeah. therein lies the big difference is my mm-hmm. relationship with myself. Uh-huh. So it sprung from that. And I think a lot of therapists and, and maybe coaches like yourself and mentors, we tend to gravitate towards the areas that, you know, we have done personal work on and we know the best. So yes which in my case is pregnancy loss and self-criticism. Right. So so that was why the idea came about. And I, knowing me as I do, and this is another kind of learning about mm. kind of knowing what, where, my, where my strong suits are and where they aren't, I'm never going to be a self-help right I, I just knew I couldn't write a self-help book mm. um, as you're probably learning already I'm I'm not very good at sort of bullet point thinking so it, it just didn't fit with my style so I wanted to somehow write about self-criticism but in a mm. narrative way yeah so it came about as you know other therapists like Yalom and Susie Orbach mm. have written case studies so in a way I was sort of gifted this protocol of how to how to write about something with this case study um story format so they're they're fiction i've got uh yeah seven eight. i was about to say eight thank you <laughs> eight. <laughs> eight, eight stories um <laughs> of of case of fictional case studies so they're composites mm. of of all the hundreds and hundreds of conversations i've had with people over the year and probably bit, you know bits of me thrown in there and mm. bits of people i know where each chapter takes on a a, a a different experience of self-criticism mm. and unpacks the possible probable causes that I've come across and talk about a lot in my practice in my practice mm. so for example I talked to a, a woman who's um, incredibly self-critical particularly in the workplace and then and in through our conversations we track that back to her um, in fact it's her relationship very much with her, her parents, but in particular mm-hmm. her father, who was very, very pushy and expected a lot from her, and it was an emotionally very arid house. I talked to uh, a man who actually strolls in, exactly like you were saying, about this sort of veneer of formidable. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I experienced him as I write about him, but he'd been quite arrogant and unpleasant, and yeah. I really struggled to like him. Yes. But it transfers, as you say, you know, it's a, it's a shield against this very, very um, profound wounding of having been sort of savagely bullied through, yes. through school. 
And then just, you know, plucking one more. Um, I, the, the, I, the, only one story is of a couple. I work with couples as well as individuals who come to me and, and their source of, of sort of, um, self-criticism as, as a couple, uh, uh, through their experience of not being able to conceive and carry a child, which mm-hmm. is something that, you know, my other work tells me that is often a very profound source of low self-worth. So as I say, there are, there are plenty more stories in there, but yes. it's, it was through the kind of idea of, of, uh, of a, me just narrating a conversation with my clients in the room. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the setting is very limited. It's in the four walls of my consulting room. <laughs> it's it's a it's it's fabulous. I mean, I mean, I'm looking forward to getting more into it, and uh, I do find it fascinating. There's something I wanted to ask you, and when I told you I'm, earlier when we were chatting that I mentor many female founders and and entrepreneurs, and what I feel drives them, and I see this in me. It's nearly a. a I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah, I'm going to prove you wrong. So it's the who am I proving wrong? Yeah, who's the, the you? The the critics, yeah. Who Who is it we're proving wrong? And so they, they get on and they do that and they get their head down and they, they become hugely successful. Now, I'm not, for all you female entrepreneurs listening here, I'm not generalizing, I'm not saying that's everybody, but a number have done it because when we, when we drill down, it's something in childhood, whether it's been bullying yeah. or it's been a parent yeah. or or something. And it and it's made them feel like they have to prove themselves. So they've literally nearly driven themselves into the ground, being yeah. hugely successful. But what's interesting is that they seem to attract narcissists for partners, many of them, where it's as if they've had partners who so they're they're really strong in their business. But at home, they're being walked all over mm. and they don't seem to have any confidence at home. No, I'm not, this isn't everybody. This isn't everybody. These are just a couple of, of conversations, you know, that mm. I've had with clients and then sort of, you know, I don't know, what, what is that? Do you, is this something that you recognise in, in any clients? What comes up for me as you say that is that, that I, I think there, and yes, I have many times come across mm. conversations through through getting to know people is that the dimensional difference, if that's too strong a way of putting it, mm. between our professional selves and our private, emotional, kind of intimate selves, that mm. I, I think that the, the, the workspace that can provide a sort of protocol or a process or sort of scaffolding of, of achievement and success and gaining power and that there's a, there's a, there's a way to be that is, there's a sort of format for it. Mm. And people can step into that role. And I, I, again, going back to this idea, as I described myself, about that word formidable, that mm. often those people who, and it can be driven from a place of, of fear, as you describe, I need to mm. prove to somebody, whether it was my father or actually, you know, and I write about my book, Widening the Lens, as I do, mm. I have a whole chapter on in, a, a woman who's internalized so much misogyny and, and racism. Mm that women are up against too in the world. So they might be trying to prove that too. But it's it's from a place of, you know, as I say, kind of driven by kind of fear and needing to defend oneself. But it doesn't deal with what's going on underneath and that's mm. a relationship with oneself. And mm-hmm. so back in the private realm, in an emotional, intimate space, yeah. you can lack an enormous, it's perfectly possible to have a, a complete lack of self-worth 
vis-a-vis an intimate relationship, which is a very kind of exposing one, mm-hmm. um, rather than sort of stepping on stage and, and bossing it with a PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that made sense. It, no, it makes absolute sense. And it's as if the, what, what they're doing is, I don't know, again, if, if this is right, but it seems to me that they're, they're driven and driven and driven, but they get to a point where enough's never going to be enough because they haven't actually addressed the problem. So, so it's a the, fragile system. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? So it's, it's like the people at home can tap into the chink in their armor mm-hmm. and control them in that home environment. Mm. So by driving ahead to prove yourself, Surely the answer is heal yourself. It is. And then drive yourself it is, to where you want to be. I agree. And it's it's sort of a bit, it can become a, a, a bit addictive to kind of, you know, you get your dopamine hits, but it's such a fragile mm. and, and ultimately depleting system. If you're, if you, if you keep thriving, well, you're not thriving. If you keep mm. getting your, your little dose of self-worth by winning another client mm. or getting a pay rise or, you know, reach, reaching those targets that are put upon you, mm. it, you know, it, it's the next and the next, and then it's a never ending cycle mm. and it's very depleting. But if that's your only measure of getting a self, your self-worth, you're kind of trapped in that. Yeah. But it's, it's a bypass absolutely mm. from dealing with what's, you know, what's really going on. Why do you need yeah. to keep getting these hits? I know, exactly. That's like, that's exactly it. I mean, there is a parallel with addiction work. Some, mm. Now that I'm talking about this in this way, that mm. it's, that you could see an analogy with, you know, having another drink and uh-huh. getting that, or yeah. line of Coke or mm-hmm. that's right. buying some, you know. Because it is an addiction. Outfit. It is an addiction that money's never enough. Can be, can Because be. if you go and like, oh, I want a six-figure business. Right, okay, I've got the six-figure business. Oh, I need a seven-figure business. All right, so I've got the seven-figure business. Where do I go from here? Mm-hmm. And what happens when you get to that point and you go, well, I've, you know, they've basically got to the, each destination, but they've missed the journey. So mm. how, if, if someone recognizes themselves now, we're having this conversation, yeah, and they're listening and they're thinking, God, enough's never enough for me. Mm. What is really going on? What is really going on? How can they sort of, what, what do they do? What do they need to do to, to, to sort of break that cycle? Well, ask them, so have, already have, having mm. curiosity about that differential, mm. I think is, absolutely crucial Mm. isn't this interesting that I only feel okay momentarily when I get the next thing Mm -hmm. it it reminds me as you as you were speaking of maybe you've come across the the work of Carl Rogers you know he's Mm. a very sort of um along with Freud one of these very kind Mm. of famous therapists who who introduced some really valuable thinking to us and he talks about these bit of a mouthful but the external loci of evaluation internal loci of evaluation Mm. so the the idea being that yeah the external uh, evaluators are, as we say, the promotion, mm. the car, the nice house, the holiday, the fancy handbag, all of that. <laughs> but, but actually, really, what is what is healthy and what we should aspire to is bringing it, bringing it inside to mm. that sense of. And I know this is a podcast, but I'm holding my yes, belly. But yes, you can yeah. you, you can see me. But that yes. sense of. I'm okay. And yeah. that's so, so asking someone to be curious about, isn't this interesting that there isn't enough of a sense of mm. I'm okay just as I am on its own, you know, mm-hmm. w- without, without it being pegged or correlated to success or achievement or external markers. Yes, exactly. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And 
in terms of you know this this self criticism mm. um what you know there's a lot of people very hard on themselves aren't they you know they are very very hard on themselves and you know what what why i mean is life not hard <laughs> enough without being hard on yourself big question but i th- i think it's really tangled up in exactly what we've been talking about mm. i mean so you know i'll i'll start with the kind of macro level exactly that i think we live in a mm. very competitive society that is obsessed with you know look just read the papers our budget's all about economic growth <sighs> and and achievement and and money and 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 so mm-hmm. so we we live in this you know in the western capitalist world i think is i've seen it in my in my adult lifetime just it's getting more and more that way not helped by the internet and social media and all of that so mm. so there's 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 this kind of culture of striving and not therefore not being you know when are we ever good enough yeah but you know in the mix and when i talk to people exactly as you do it's sort of mm. unpacking people's stories but there's 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 often so much more in the mix to mm. um cultivate the self-critical beliefs mm. these self-limiting beliefs that i'm not yeah. good enough so yes. yes there's the culture and the work environment that we're in and the mm. you know the target setting and all that but as my stories in my book try and sort of shine a light on that yeah. there might well be um, stuff going on in the family with mum and dad and siblings mm. or wider family um, or bullying mm. uh, in the school and our, our kind of adolescence is also I touch on sort of that whether we, you know, there's a whole other podcast around the effects of kind of social media and, oh. and, and the internet and what it's doing to our yeah. teenage kids and well mm. it's not even just teenagers i talk to people well in their 50s and yep. 60s who who um are affected by their facebook likes and things mm. like that but mm-hmm. um um and it, you know as i said also this we live in a very pronatal society mm. and there are also other forces at play one of my my final chapter i i talked to a a woman who is um well over 40 and formidable mm. in a soft, becomes formidable in her soft way, mm. um, who actually had to unpack a lot of internalized judgment and self-critical limiting beliefs from a religious background. Right. Um, so in a very roundabout way, big question, why do so many people have self-limiting beliefs? There's, mm. a, there's a whole host of answers to that one, but I would definitely say that culturally, of of late when i say you know past 10 20 years and by my reckoning mm. things have been amped up yeah definitely i mean social media like you said there i mean goodness me if ever there was a for the next generation you know this laminated perfect life that is portrayed on there and that's another reason why i wanted to do this formidable over 40 podcast was so that midlife uh, women and I've just had a midlife gentleman would c- come on and share the real life stories because it's very easy to look at somebody's destination of where they are and they, they, they appear successful and just think, God, you know, that's so far out of reach for me. But I think it's important to share the reality of the journey of what's actually gone, th- what people have gone through the decades to get to that final destination. Mm-hmm. Because if you read everything on social media, you can become a seven-figure mil- millionaire, seven-figure business owner Overnight. while, you're, while yeah. you're drinking cocktails and lying on a beach in Bali. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah, what they're yeah. telling our kids. So our kids are setting themselves up for 
for fa- failure, basically, because yeah. it's like, you know, they're, they're telling them, if you can't do this, you aren't good enough. And if you don't look like this, you're not good enough. And I think it's so important to to be sharing the reality and the, and the mm. raw and honest stories so that, you know, I, I'd love to think that kids would listen to this and, you know, even if they're, they're listening to the parents listening in and think, mm. hang on then. So, so these people haven't just appeared you know, and it got this perfect life through, you know, waving a magic wand. They've gone through huge peaks and troughs of adversity, joy, adversity, joy to get there. And it's not plain sailing. And by extension of that, we have distorted body images. You know, know, that body was not achieved through eating kale smoothies. It's been distorted by the camera lens and it's such a complete digression. It's not about me, but you know, I said I was an unhappy 15-year-old, but yeah. I thank my lucky stars I was born in 1972. Oh, yeah, I was 71. Thank God we didn't have all that carry-on. Oh. Horrendous. Um, I don't and think I would have survived. Filters. That's the trouble. You see, people don't realise these are all... There's a new filter on TikTok. And I don't know what the hell it's called, but there's this fancy thing now and they put it on and they instantly look like a movie star. You know, they literally, it, it looks so natural. You can't tell that it's a filter. And yet it, it makes everybody literally look like they're a movie star. So how do you know if they are or they aren't? So there's this sudden aspiration that everybody's got to look like this filter. You know, it is. It's uh, You can understand why why people are self-critical, can't you? When it's like, <laughs> that's what you're up against. And I, t- I touch on this in my book, actually, that it just reminds me of like another aspect that, that trickles down into people's sort of self-limiting beliefs and what they come to, to when they first, quite often people first sit down on the chair in front of me and there's a sense of failing because they're there in the first place. Mm. And it's a sort of double whammy. They're kind of criticizing their self-criticism. And I do see a link between, again, going back to social media, there's sort of Mm -hmm. the burgeoning wellness industry. And I write about this, which I'm... I'm I'm all for anything that helps anybody. You know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't have that, that mindset. However, I do see a bit of a backlash that, that people are internalizing this. But, you know, I, I do yoga once a week and I do 15 minutes meditation and I, you know, eat kale, kale. Exactly. (laughs) Let's go back to kale. Um, kale. I've stripped refined sugar out of my diet. Yeah. I'm still miserable. I'm failing. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, you know, it's, um, all of those things are good, but again, it's going about, it's, it's bypassing the, the, the real stuff underneath. And, Mm-hmm. And also, there's a. I think sometimes, and I, you have more probably more contact with organisations than I do. That organisations can s- sort of swerve their own responsibility. You yeah. know, I talked to a lot of people saying, you know, my boss is very kindly paying for this, but okay, that's good. But yeah. your boss is also expecting you to produce, uh-huh. you know, two reports overnight. Yeah. Um. Very all well and good giving you an, a subscription to the Calm app or putting a yoga studio in one mm-hmm. of the conference rooms but let's deal with the fact that you need four more people in your team that's exactly it mm-hmm. <laughs> that, 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 that literally sums it up doesn't it that sums the whole the whole thing up you touched on self-limiting beliefs and you know so many people are held back by self-limiting beliefs yeah. and fear of what people think or what will they say and you know there's a huge lot of talent sitting on the fence because it's fearful of yeah you know being judged or you know, actually pushing through that comfort zone yeah. or those self-limiting beliefs. Have you ever suffered from self-limiting beliefs? Is a, you know, 
it was my downfall. As I said, you know, my husband sort of said, look, <laughs> this is something you know about. And, and mm -hmm. it was the, the um, absolute core of my own personal therapy and mm -hmm. um, personal development work. Development work. I, I would never have described myself as someone suffering from anxiety or depression, but I would suffer from these very powerful want a better word um sort of shame attacks you know i would uh -huh. be gripped by by this so yeah no, that's definitely been kind of inspiring for the work that i've mm -hmm. that i've done i mean i managed to dismantle it because mm -hmm. you know going back to what we talked about through my own work and this is very much reflective in the stuff that i i do myself now with my clients is over time i began to understand that my self-critical belief that could feel so credible in the moment mm -hmm. actually wasn't true capital letter t mm -hmm. you know that it was internalized software for, for want of a metaphor that for, for lots of very good reasons i took in um the belief that i wasn't good enough mm. and and you know my personal story and what you know it was for various reasons that was bespoke for me you know everybody's mm. everybody's story is individual so in coming to realize that that you know, I didn't, and I, I, I sum it up that yeah, I don't believe any baby is born of the world thinking, yeah, she said oh, this, yeah. you know, my my thigh's a bit fat mm -hmm. for this pampers, uh -huh. and so so it was through the kind of unpacking of the possible, probable, and then what sources of myself, Christians, I could recruit all that thinking mm. to then get some space around it and eventually the space got bigger and bigger and bigger until I could you know now and of course my self-criticism hasn't disappeared and sometimes mm -hmm. I, I really need it you mm. know I I cock up all, all the time <laughs> I do need to wrap myself over the knuckles but but by and large you know I can see it for what it is and and have respect for it because always our, our self-critical part it was there for, is there as a creation with very good reason. We need to mm. respect it. We need to be kind and compassionate towards it because it was a, ultimately, in my experience, always a defense maneuver from that we created much often mm. in childhood or maybe, mm. you know, maybe not always, but often has a long lineage. Mm -hmm. Usually the more tenacious self-critic is, it tends to have the longer roots so as I say, yeah, recruit, over, uh, recruiting all that thinking and, and allowed me to just sort of wriggle away from it and, yeah, choose, choose something. And alongside that process is that was having to kind of re-educate myself mm. to, to the belief that, that a lot of people struggle with, that I, I'm an uh, equal member of humanity. You know, yeah. I should treat myself exactly like I do every other human being, no, no mm. better. Mm. but certainly no worse yeah and yeah. that's that's a real biggie for a lot of people that's that you know on on paper that makes sense but actually mm. believing it is yeah. often the real nub of the work getting someone to truly start treating themselves as they would someone else it doesn't even yeah. have to be someone that they 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 love or or you know quite often people treat strangers mm. better than they treat themselves yeah and it's about talking to yourself i always say you know, I'm always saying this to my son, talk to yourself as you would your best friend, yeah, you know, that, you know, it's so important rather than being so hard on yourself. He, he's a, he rides horses at a very high level and, oh, wow. um, he's very critical. He's only 23, but he's, he's achieved so much in such a young, young life that, you yeah. know, he's, 
really been hard on himself to get to there. But and I always say to him, I just want him to be kinder to himself. You know, yeah. he's, he's only 23. You speak to yourself as you would your best friend, you know, and it's, yeah. It's, oh, that's such a lovely mantra and, and certainly one that, you know, I yeah. beat like a drum all the time in my consulting room. And mm. there's, um, you know, in the back of my book, I've got lots of further reading and one mm. very inspirational thinker, writer, psychologist for me is a guy called Professor Paul Gilbert. I don't know if you've ever come across him. Well, everybody listening to this needs to go and buy one of his books, Professor Gilbert, because he is the sort of pioneering thinker on self-compassion in the UK. There are some others in the US, but Mm. he he, he's the pioneer behind compassion focused therapy, which is a a development of CBT, cognitive cognitive Mm. behavioral therapy. Anyway, don't want to get into the weeds of that because yeah. we'll be here forever. But the point I was trying to get to is that he's really hot on, and he, when working about, when working with self-talk, as you say, to to be really mindful about the the tone of voice you use and mm. the kind of in, internal sort of creature you inhabit as you say this to yourself. It's it's not going to work if we say, oh, you know, come on, you're really good, you know, you're wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's just like throwing jelly at the wall. You've really got to speak to yourself, but inhabiting that compassionate mm. stance that you would for someone. Yeah. Being, definitely being kind to yourself. As people say, oh, be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. I mean, that is, like you say, it's so much easier said than done because yeah. it's not something that's just going to happen overnight. It's something that you've got to really work on because it's changing the complete narrative of how you've spoken to yourself for bloody decades. Well, you said it. It's about, it's rewiring your relationship with yourself. Yeah. yeah that's massive. Absolutely. And there'll be a lot of women and men listening to this and, and they'll be feeling really stuck at the moment you know and they'll be they'll be saying but you know I just don't know how the hell to to get through this you know I I am lacking in confidence or I have had this adversity that's hit me and I just can't I can't break the pattern of how it's made me feel what is the first step would you say for them to break you know to start the process of of breaking free for reframing for rewiring whatever we want to call it to help them to to cut loose and move forward? What would be the sort of the first steps that they should take? I reckon the first step would be a willingness and or, or curiosity mm-hmm. around changing. So, so being curious about the stuckness, I don't know whether mm-hmm. this is making sense, yes, but if, yes, uh-huh. if, if you, if, if we're defeated by the stuckness, mm then we're never going to move, are we? No. If we give in to the stuckness, it, it is what it is. And sometimes I do meet people who just say, well, you know, that's that's what I'm like, end of. Mm. So, you, yeah. so, so by definition, if, you, if you're in the space of being curious about working with the stuckness and there's a part of you that can believe there's another way and that things mm. can change, then that's a, that's a place to start. One of the questions I always ask my clients is one of the very first questions in my program. And I ask them when they last felt happy. Uh-huh. And that's very interesting because when I ask them that, it's like, there's a big pause. You know, it's not like, happy's not there. It's like, hmm, I've, they've been a someone's for so many years, they've forgotten about being a someone. Mm-hmm. And when they go back to when did they last feel happy, you know, some of them, they, they really can't remember. They can't, you know, mm. I ask them, what did happy feel like? And they, they can't remember what happy felt like because I, 
I don't know. I think it's just in life. Sometimes you can just be carried along, can't you? Carried along. And it's about claiming back some time for yourself as well to, to, to have your own identity mm-hmm. and to do the work. Because, you know, if, if you're feeling like this and you're just holding on to it, this is decades of being held back, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's about the sooner you can put that stake in the ground and say, right, enough's enough. It's not going to be easy. I can, I appreciate it's going to be hard. But lying in my deathbed saying, I'm glad I did rather than I wished I had, has got to be better, hasn't it, to, to, to do the work now. So, you know, my message is to them to listen to this interview and, you know, start trying to unravel. It's funny because a lot of them, a lot of my clients go back to childhood and say that, you know, they, they were told that they were never good enough, you mm. know, by, by their parents or they could be, do better. I also yeah. remember my school reports, everyone said she could do better. Mm. And um, and I often say to my clients, you know, well, what would that look like now, looking at it through the eyes of an adult rather mm. than through the eyes of the child you were then about, you know, trying to reframe it. And, mm. you know, sometimes it's trying to get a different perspective on it as well sometimes, isn't it, from how you saw it as a child to to seeing it as an adult. I mean, what can people do if, if they know that something, you know, like before they can come be brave enough to come and see someone like yourself? Because it does take quite a lot oh, to, gosh, to, yeah. to actually put that state in the ground and say, right, I'm going to go and see somebody. Definitely to try courage. and, you know, do some of the work themselves. What is it that they could do if, if they know, say, for example, it's bullying from school, if they can mm. take it back and say, right, yeah, I was bullied at school and that's had a, a profound effect on me or my parents were always telling me I wasn't good enough or so-and-so or whatever. What can they do to try and sort of reframe that if you can? Can you reframe that? I, I think you can and everybody's different. And, and mm. some people... That might be enough. Just the kind of aware, the you know, the curiosity around where did this messaging come from, mm. and then realizing, oh, you know, no wonder I beat myself up because I was told I was an idiot for five years in high school. Mm. But it, in my experience, it's a, it's actually quite a rare person mm. who can. That's enough to make a change. Yeah, um, and I'm not here peddling psychotherapy yeah, or yeah, ca- yeah. coaching yeah, or counseling yeah. or med- but but actually um if they can find a space where, as i say it's in a talking therapy room or somewhere else to mm. um to 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 go a bit deeper and kind of process the hurt around that that mm. that experiencing you know when when we were bullied for those years or put down for those years or mm. whatever it is that, that we experience great distress and I think that in itself just needs a little bit of processing to be re- to be released for a yeah. better word. As I say, you know, sometimes it's just the realization I don't want to be doing this anymore. But yes. that's very rare. So, mm. so we do need to, in my experience, spend to do a proper thorough job at this. Spend a little time processing that hurt and distress, and. Um, you know, one shortcut way of describing that is it, it, it is kind of reparenting ourselves, going back there in our minds and, and properly thinking about and feeling about what it what we went through and mm-hmm. how dreadful it was and what, what deficit there was, what we did need. And mm-hmm. in, in the luxury of a therapy space, that might take 
you know, f- a few weeks or, mm. you know, in real trauma. Sometimes I work with people for years, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in answer to your question, um, I always, you know, encourage people to, 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 to be as thorough as they, as they can mm. kind of afford it both you know, in times of uh, psychological time and, yeah. um, and, and, you know, as I say, I don't want to be not sort of, this is not sort of flogging my book, the front and center, <laughs> but you know, in the epilogue of my book that, yeah. um, that I point to, towards lots of, um, reading and there are lots of other kind of resources out there now outside of therapy that can help us, um, make compassionate inquiries into our past and, and mm. really kind of get to the, the root of our, um, wounding. Yes. The wounding is the word, isn't it really? Cause that's what it is. Wounding, isn't it? It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. This is something that I'm absolutely fascinated in. Um, We always ask our guests at the end, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give to someone who's listening in and embarking on a journey of reinvention? They've, They've listened to this podcast and they feel inspired. They said, right, that's it. I've had enough. I'm sick of feeling stuck. I want to, you know, I realize now my life's, it's not over. It's all to play for. What advice would you give them? Things things always change. That is one kind of universal truth that mm. things change and, and your feelings will change. And it is it is possible to change and it is possible for the light to be to come over the horizon. But but be patient. I think that's super important because mm. most people I talk to it if you're feeling really stuck i'm mm. this very long answer to your question there's an urgency i want to change i want to change now yeah but do it to do a proper thorough lasting job that's going to stand mm-hmm. you in good stead for the rest of the you know few decades ahead yeah um be patient and be thorough and and do your proper inventory you know go as deep as you possibly can to mm. to um to to be kind to yourself um you know, going back to that that mantra about you know awful kale smoothies, but <laughs> but drink the kale smoothie while digging deep inside of you and get and get to that wounding. So yeah, yeah. patience and faith. Yeah, patience and faith. That's absolutely fantastic. Honestly, thank you so much. Thank you I've so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Julia. Now, uh, for anyone watching on YouTube, this is the book. Everyone is a critic. Now, Julia, where can the listeners find out more about you and more about your book? Um, I have a website, which is my name, juliabueno.co.uk. Um, you don't know much about me because I, I don't, but I, I post things that I read and, um, my book will be in any good independent books, bookstore. Mm-hmm. I should be plugging independent bookstores <laughs> or, or any other obvious places on the net but thank uh-huh. you so much for having me oh thank you it's been for lovely thank talking to you and i i love what you're doing so oh that's really kind Let's thank speak. you ever so much thank you so thank you for listening to the formidable over 40 podcast thank you so much to the wonderful julia for joining us head to the show notes to find links to connect with julia and get a copy of her book Follow the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and please subscribe, rate and share Formidable Over 40 with anyone you think will enjoy it or needs to hear it. 